Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things that you can buy that will actually help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This reason is why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current course setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, and along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time pouring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times are to hunt. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and white-tailed deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery. All at my fingertips. I've had an opportunity to use the desktop version last year and have been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store and download it today. Welcome to the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 266. Today, we're talking Alabama Slammers with Michael Perry, so stay tuned. All right, all right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Hopefully, you are... uh, Feeling better than I am at at the moment. I managed to uh, catch the bad stuff, and and finally, I think on the mend. Um, it was a rough couple of days. I wanted to make sure I got this uh, upfront pulled together and uh, this podcast out for you guys this weekend or this week rather. Um, I don't think I've ever missed a week unintentionally in six years of putting out the podcast, and I sure as shit wasn't going to let the uh, this whatever this illness that I got going on. Uh, be the culprit of that, but I am going to keep this up front pretty short to try to avoid any uh, 
significant coughing fits that I may that I may launch into. Uh, two quick pieces of housekeeping for you guys before we jump into it is I uh, want to make mention that the Great American Outdoor Show is coming up here at the beginning of February. I want to say I think it's the 5th is the first day, if I'm not mistaken. I will be there the opening Saturday of the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg. Um, you can visit me at one of two booths uh, I'll be at. Um, our boys uh, from Exodus will have a booth in the Archery Hall. That's uh, booth 927 is the Exodus booth. Uh, stop by and say hi to me. If I'm not there at that moment, say hi to Chad. Give him some shit. Say hi to Jake and say hi to all the boys. Tethered also will have a booth in the Archery Hall at 1033. I think it's in the Archery Hall. Uh, regardless, the booth number is 1033, and I will be spending some time there that day as well. That is the opening Saturday of the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg. So with that, I have a super cool show for you guys today. Uh, talking to Michael Perry, you might think that you've heard from Michael Perry on the show before because there is a Michael Perry of Pennsylvania who I've had on the show in the past. This is Michael Perry who resides in Alabama. I found out from him whenever I was doing a podcast with my buddies from Exodus and we were talking about some of the best deer hunters that maybe no one has ever heard of. And I was told, man, if you're looking for a guy from the South and you want to meet a dude who just is a straight killer and, you know, puts critters on the ground, this is Michael Perry is the guy you need to talk to. And so I sought him out. Um, he was willing to come on the show and we had an awesome conversation. He's a guy who's got book, you know, deer in, in, in the books and record books in Alabama with a bow, uh, with a rifle. And then this past year, he killed an absolute giant that he'll tell the story of, uh, with his muzzle loader this year. So he's in with three diff different forms of take, which is super cool. Um, super good dude. Awesome hunter. Uh, is just very much kind of a, a purist and a guy that spends, spends time in the timber and, um, you know, is, is just a true, true outdoorsman, which you know, is something I think we should all probably kind of aspire to be. The other kind of kicker is we didn't really get into this a whole lot, but I know just from, from his story a little bit, he does a lot of hunting with his wife. So it's a hunting couple as well. So it's uh it's not just him. His, his wife is also a killer as well, but I had the opportunity to have Mike on, uh, this time, maybe next time we'll, uh, we'll make it a family fair, family affair. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and just jump into the show. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I am talking to, I'm, I'm getting a little Southern flavor on the podcast today. And I wanted to do this by way of a gentleman uh, by the name of Michael Perry. So, Michael, the, the way I actually learned about you is we were doing a, um, we were doing a kind of top five DIY, um, unknown kind of, uh, you know, goats, if you will, or, you know, best DIY bow hunters in the country that nobody or that few people know about, right. That was kind of like the criteria. And we were going through the list and my buddy actually mentioned, mentioned your name. You, you were on his like list of consideration. And what he told me was, cause I was like, you know, I've been doing the podcast for a while, like six years. Like I, you know, fortunate enough to know a lot of different guys from a lot of different States and stuff like that. And your, your name, I had never run across before. And I was surprised. And he said, he said, if you want to know, uh, how to kill big deer in the South, there is one man to talk to. And his name is Michael Perry. And so he's a good friend of mine that I have a lot of respect for. So once he told me that I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta find this Michael Perry guy and, and talk to him. So how you doing tonight? I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, it's funny to say that because I was, was coming back from Iowa, my brother and uh, Mike Perry, the guy from Pennsylvania, I'm friends with yeah. on Facebook and stuff, and he had messaged me about it, and we'd listened to the podcast when we were driving home, so it was pretty neat. So I had y'all had a good list of some fine hunters for sure. So. Nice, yeah, yeah. Mike, yeah, Mike's a good guy. We uh, 
We, we, we message back and forth every so often, you know, when I was out in Iowa, actually, he was, um, I guess that was two and a half, I guess two seasons ago, maybe three seasons ago, three seasons. I think, um, I missed a, a big deer during archer season, uh, that year out there. And, uh, you know, he was messaging me, you know, after I had the miss and just giving me some words of encouragement and stuff like that. So he's a, he's a good guy. He's a killer. And it must run in the Perry name, man. Michael Perry, you guys, any relation? <laughs> no, we're not. We're not. As far as I know, we're not anyway. So, but no. that'd be something to look up. But no, yeah. most of my people come out of Georgia. So, so. Okay. Very nice. Is that where you're originally from, Georgia? No, I'm from Alabama, but my grandpa and his family, them, they, they come across from, from Georgia heading toward Texas. And then when they got to Texas, they, uh, I've told this story, I think, a time or two. They took the old grandma off or went across in wagons, and they took her off and set her out there, and she's looking across the horizon and says, I don't like it. So they turn around and come back <laughs> and stop, stopped in Alabama, and that's where we, that's where we set up from. So. Man, that's, so. a pretty, that's a pretty organic way to uh, land in Alabama. I like that grandma was ruling the roost, man. That's uh, She <laughs> she was the uh, king of the castle, I guess, or queen of the castle. They had to make her happy, but my grandma wasn't happy. Nobody's happy, so yeah. So right. here we are. Yeah, How, you know, it's it's funny. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? It's like it's that still the true. same in, in in this house too. Yeah, that is true. So. Yeah, that's right. So, man, I know you were just uh, you just mentioned you were coming back from Iowa. You're just out in Iowa. You were out for a uh, for a late season uh, a trip, if I'm not mistaken. So it was your buddy that was hunting. You were you hunting as well, or were you out there just kind of giving him a hand? No, I had a tag and. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jacob Myers, I don't know if you know him, but mm-hmm. he had a tag. We kind of we kind of put in together, and there's three other guys that put in, too, but they put in for the second shotgun, and they were up there before us. And Out of five of us, Jacob was the only one to kill, but, uh, of course, it was public land, and uh, uh, talking about some pressure, there was a lot of pressure. You know, them hunts run back to back to back, and the, the deer were, uh, were very on edge, and just the last few minutes before the dark, most of the time, if you'd seen any, so. Right. We run we run cameras for over a month, and uh, uh, some guys put some out for us on different types of trails and scrapes and stuff. We had about seventeen hundred pictures, mostly deer, and ninety five percent of them was at night. There was no decent bucks in daylight, so right. It was a uh, pretty pretty normal for what you see on on public land, even down here in the south, about the bucks, you know, movement on pressured land, so. Mm-hmm. But it will. We, like I said, I didn't have any luck. I had a, I passed a one twenty or so. We had most loader on like it was a late, late most loader season hunt. So and seen a couple more good ones. They're just too far out. So yeah, it's it's funny that folks that have never been, you know, for folks that haven't been to Iowa to hunt, they have this um, illusion maybe of how how clean it is. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. how un, unpressured it is or whatever. I just had a buddy of mine on uh, last week. His podcast just came out. Um, he killed a great one this year in bow season. I think it was, he was either October 31st or it might've been November 1st. I don't remember exactly what the date it was right there at the end of October, beginning of November. It was big, his biggest archery buck to date. I think it was one sixty and some change. I think is what it is, what it was. And I ran wow. into him while I was hunting out there in a parking lot is, is, is how we met. And we just kind of got to talking about what you were just mentioning, which is those folks who have never been to Iowa to hunt, think that you go out there and you just don't ever see a soul on, on public land. And, and I know at least from bow from bow hunting perspective, it's not as much as Pennsylvania. And I'll get you know f- for sure Pennsylvania, Michigan. Like I'll give it I'll give it that during bow season. But the way their seasons kind of run back to back to back and stuff like that, when you're hunting late season out there, man, like that's I mean those are some pretty pressured deer that you're running into. Right. Well, they're very pressure. I've never seen so many lock-ons and or ladder stands in the place. In my life, we went to four different areas and 
when we went to one place and was standing where three fingers come together and there's four different letter stands. <laughs> it was amazing to right. so highly pressured. So. Right. What I, now did you have any, do you have any snow out there to be able to do a little bit of, a little bit of tracking we, or no? When we first got there, it snowed, but it wasn't, it was like four inches in the, in the lower part of the state. And then, but we're kind of where we was at around the inch, but it wasn't enough to, to really do much. So mm. nice. Now, uh, after that muzzleloader hunt, have you been out? I'm assuming you've been out for archery season in the past before too, right? Out to Iowa? Yeah. No, that's the first time I've been to Iowa. The only other place I've been to bow hunting outside Alabama is Wyoming, public land, mule deer and whitetail. And I've, I've took a couple of white, or a couple of mule deer with a bow, spot top, one whitetail, Wyoming with a bow. And then I went to Illinois on some public land and passed up one or two smaller ones, but wasn't successful. And that's the only, that's the only time I've been out of state. So. Okay. It's hard to leave Alabama during the rut for where the main place I hunt because it's the ruts kind of coincide with with Iowa and Illinois and stuff like that. So okay, gotcha. Do you uh do you have any plans to try to make it out there during uh during archer season one of these years? It's a, it's a thought. I really like the lake muzzleloader hunt, really to tell you the truth. And mm. but I mean, it's a thought because we found some travel corridors and stuff that was like wow, if you could be up here during the archer hunt during the rut, it would be something. Yeah, but it's it's a thought, so we'll see. Nice, yeah. It's I have a buddy of mine who usually I don't think he did it this year, but he pretty frequently gets a muzzleloader tag to go out. And his his rationale is basically he's like, look, I'll hunt the rut around here, you know, in Pennsylvania, and then Mm -hmm. you know he'll go out there for late, you know, for muzzleloader season because he's like, I can more easily draw the tag. You know, he's like, and, and a lot of times he'll take his bow and and hunt it. Now he does he hunts a combination of of public. And then he does have uh, a family out there that he knows that he can, that he can hunt their farm. So he usually will kind of check that out. And if it's good, he might spend some time there. If not, then he just kind of ventures off on to, uh, on the public land. But I will, uh, I'll definitely give it a vote for you to go out during, during archery season. It was one of those places of all those States that I've hunted. Um, I, I just, it was, um, I'm trying to figure out how to say it. I've never seen or have never hunted in a place where I just, so frequently watched deer just do deer things during archery season. Like where like uh-huh. the, during that time of year that there's not a ton of pressure, even on the public I was on, I saw guys, but it wasn't, it wasn't overrun by any stretch of the imagination. And so everything that you would hope would work, whether it's rattling or snort wheezing or whatever the case was, like I was getting responses to all that where Pennsylvania, you throw out a rattle good luck. Like it's probably going to run three States away. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. calling to anything yeah. around here just doesn't seem to work, but you know, it certainly yeah. worked works there. And that was just kind of really cool to really cool to see. Cause it's something I don't get to experience very much in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. Alabama to me on public land, it's kind of similar. It's got to be the right situation and a completely right setup to, to rattle and to try to make it work. It's too hard. In most places I hunt the kitchen, well, the big books will always circle pretty much get downwind of you. And it, it's hard. You got to have a, some kind of hard back wall behind you or something where they can't get behind you or can't get downwind of you or something like that to, to be successful. And I'm, I don't do that that much. Yeah. Yeah. Out so. there, it just, uh, it, I won't say it worked with every, with every deer, but you got a, you got a response. It worked more often than, than not, shall we say. And same thing here in, in, wow. in, in PA. Um, you know, I usually don't even take rattling antlers into the woods with me during, you know, in Pennsylvania during any time of the, during any time of the season, faintly will grunt once in a while if i can have a visual on the deer and i can see his body language and if he seems like he's calm and he's not 
on edge, you know, or if he seems like he's aggressive, if he's posturing or whatever, then, you know, maybe I'll throw something out to him. But otherwise, man, I picked the spot and know that I should be in the right, right area. And, and, and hopefully they pass that. Hopefully I did my homework and they passed that tree. That's kind of my game plan. <laughs> man, I like the snake approach of the, the assassin style or whatever. I don't want to find him, but I don't want to know I'm even hunting them by hand. So. Right. Yeah. So before we jump into things, man, you know, we start, we, we talked a little bit about your background, but if you wouldn't mind just to kind of kick things off, uh, let's folks out there listening know, you know, where you're from and, and what you do for a living. Yeah. Uh, I'm 57 years old and I'm born right in Alabama. I've, I've been working at a chemical plant now for 25 years, 12 hour swing shifts. So I'm just a, a working guy. I spent five years in Navy when I was younger. Um, uh, Grew up trapping and squirrel hunting and bird hunting, stuff like that. Done a little deer hunting, but I was not successful until later on in life. My dad and uh, his buddies, they all liked, uh, liked muzzleloader-style hunting, either sex hunts, and that's pretty much, they were just trying to kill a deer. Not yet. Me and my brother, we didn't really get into the big buck thing or trying to get bigger bucks until uh, later on. He killed a, a big old 180-inch 18-point on some public land, and that was a, like a whole different level. So <laughs> we kind of changed our tactics and uh, I didn't kill my first good deer until I was 31 years old. And then, so after that, I've killed some, some good ones. And, uh, I'm not as trophy minded as, as, as some would think or, or some people would want where our goal is to try to get a three and a half year old off of public land, Alabama. And, and, and that's pretty tough sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. I've killed some five and six years old, but, it's public land's a different game. I understand why people want to try to let them get older and stuff like that. But to me, it's I don't I don't like any restrictions on public land. Some people are are trying to put something in the freezer or whatever. So that's fine with me if that's what you want to do. I'm I'm, I'm plenty happy with it as long as you're getting out and enjoying outdoors. So, but yep. public land is is what I really love doing. I've I've done some few out of state trips as far as big game or, or danger game or something like that, but. Alabama public land whitetails is is the main thing I do. I'll do it all type of weapons, my loader, bow and rifle. So and my wife, my wife uh, Kathy goes a lot with me, and she's been pretty successful too. So we just really enjoy it, love the outdoors, and and have fun with it. Nice, yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned trapping because all the podcasts that I've done, a lot of the guys that I talk to that are who I would consider to be really just kind of true woodsmen and killing big whitetails just kind of happens to be something they do also, but they're kind of a woodsman at heart. That's kind of like their, their foundation, if you will. Trapping always ends up making its way in there somewhere. Like that's one of the things that I've kind of consistently heard, especially with, you know, um, you know, fellas that, that came up during the, you know, during the hunting time where there wasn't a ton of, hunting media and podcasts and and stuff like that. How much do you think kind of learning how to trap and like understanding, you know, how those critters are behaving and how they're reacting to scent and, and stuff like that. How much of that do you think has helped you in understanding, you know, how to really kind of get after whitetails? Oh, that's helped them a lot because especially dry, dry ground trapping, you had to be as scent free as stuff as you could. And you're trying to make an animal put its foot on a one inch piece of steel, you know, in the area that you're trapping. So it, it, it helps you to learn how they travel, how, how careful they are, how they use uh, trails and uh, pinch points and, 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 and just natural travel corridors. 
So it, it, it helps a lot, especially lamb trapping and blind style trapping where you're not using any kind of scent. You're trying, uh, like I was saying earlier about the deer hunt or buck hunt, trying to catch them without them not knowing you're in the area. You got to keep them relaxed. So trapping helps, helps a lot to learn how to do that. What, uh, what was your favorite or what was the, your, I guess your, your preference of, of what you were trapping? I, I love trapping coyotes and foxes, the dry ground stuff. They were, it was harder, you know, catching raccoons and, and beaver and muskrat and stuff like that was a lot easier. It was more challenging to catch a coyote or, or, or fox or something like that on dry ground. Right. So I'd mentioned previously that, yeah, I, I, I've been to Alabama once. It was for, uh, it was for work. I had a video shoot thing that I had to do for work and, and was in, uh, was in Alabama. But like we were talking earlier, it's one of the places though that I've have you know a, a buddy who you know lives there, hunts there, kills big deer, and I almost feel like Alabama is just a little bit overlooked in terms of the quality of the of the deer in the uh, right. in the area. You know, right. I, I guess from your perspective, you know, what makes Alabama like unique in terms of whitetail hunting, particularly mature whitetails, or challenging to hunt them as well. The uh, we kind of I, I had this discussion with somebody else that hunts out of state and stuff. We, in Alabama, you know, say out west or midwest, you're looking for 140s and above. Or Alabama, you know, 140 is comparable to say a, a 100 or maybe a 110. And uh, but there's a chance, you know, the state record archery buck is around 220 something inches, and the the gun is two something. I think there's a three possibly a 300 or something like that but there's there's been some 200s killed on public land mainly in one area but uh there's genetics here but there's plenty of deer more than you know a lot of states and then the areas that i hunt is big woods style hunting so it's, it's more challenging than some of the other areas have a lot of thick cut over stuff like that so once the pressure goes on it's it's they can get in places where you can't get to them without them hearing your smell and your seeing you so it's a tough challenging, but it's 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 got its trophies, and uh, I've been uh, you know pretty successful, and and some other folks have, and then but I mean if you want to try it, I'm I'm, I'm welcome to come spend a little money, and come on down here and try it. We have a a rut a rut that you can chase pretty much from early November all the way to February <laughs> in different parts of the state, and even on public land. So that makes it fun. That's kind of what I do. It's kind of chase the rut when it when it starts in early november and then play it like it so yeah that's one of the things i've always wanted to do is uh <clears throat> you know once my everything kind of wraps up for me up here you know because rut like a lot of places right sometime early november is really when it when it hits and then our gun season comes in you know, right around right after thanksgiving you know really um and I would love to be able to t- kind of take a trip and kind of just, I've yeah. kind of dreamed of kind of doing the rut hop <laughs> of just kind of chasing uh, it in yeah. different places after, uh, yeah. after November, which would be, which would be really cool. And, I, and I've certainly seen some, some big deer come out, out of Alabama. That one place that I was working, the house that we were at where we were shooting, I walked in and, and I saw like these, these two mounts on the wall and, uh, and the person, it was like, I think someone had passed away and it was an estate that they basically used it then for like picnics and you could rent it out if you wanted to and host a, you know, a family event or whatever the case was. And we walked into this place and I'm looking around, there's these two big mounts on the wall 
And I thought maybe they were just for decoration. There was a guy that was there who was uh, a relative of like who had originally owned, the, <clears throat> excuse me, owned the property. And I looked at him and I'm like, those deer come off this property. He was like, yeah, they killed those. He told me when they killed him. I forget, I forget when it was. And they were probably both over one was probably mid one fifties. The other one was probably mid one sixties. And I was just like, you gotta be, cause it, the area that we were in, it's like, I would have never thought that it held that kind of, you know, that caliber of deer necessarily. And then I met my buddy, Brian, you know, that you and I kind of mentioned when we were talking offline that owns day six gear and he hunts in Alabama and kills big deer. And so from that point on, I was kind of like, you know what, I got to at some point try to figure out how to make my way to way to Alabama, at least to experience it. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a fair amount of water access that's around Alabama just in general too. Right. Like as far oh, as yeah, like, there's plenty, yeah, you can, you can kayak boat, whatever. There's plenty of places to do that. We got a lot of water systems, stuff like that. And quite a few public land that, that has water access and stuff. And our season uh, starts in part of the state, old season, October 1st and ends February 10th. So. Wow. The, the public land that I hunt on when like gun season and stuff, they have special days, certain days where they have guns and bow loaders. You know, it's usually on weekends, some of them's four days, some of them's five days, and some of them can be two day hunts. And so once them start, it's it's a little harder to bow hunt, you know, in between them, them hunts because you can bow hunt, you know, from October 1st to, to, the, to their season closes on the managers. It's sometimes it's specific dates, but it makes it more challenging once the bow loader and stuff starts for people that bow hunt. Like I say, I'll, I'll use all the weapons that are available. If it's, if it's open for me to use a motor loader, I'm toting a motor loader. And, or if it's a rifle to hunt, I'm toting a rifle. But this year, I, I set a goal up to kill one with a motor loader until I get one record built with a motor loader. So I've been toting a motor loader all year. So. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to that at the uh, toward the end of the at the end of the conversation. I want to hear the story about that because that was an incredible – it's a, an incredible deer. Um, mm-hmm. But – I guess you mentioned big woods, but before we get to kind of like the terrain and stuff that you're hunting specifically, I'm always curious, you know, to kind of, when I talk to guys to try to understand, you know, their approach to hunting in general, you know, like some guys that, you know, would say that they're, you know, that they're aggressive, you know, you know, other guys will say, well, they're patient and they do a lot of, a lot more observation sits and then kind of go in and, and strike. Right. Some guys are mobile, some guys preset things, you know, and just know that, you know, they've picked the right spot and they're just waiting to, to, to hunt that spot because that's, that's the spot, you know, I'm uh, curious, how would you describe your, your approach to hunting? My approach is, as as the main area, we got, you know, different types of terrain. The main area I hunt is, is kind of a mountainous. It's up to around 1100 square feet or 1100 feet altitude. And then from 50 foot, so it got some up and down hills and it's pretty much big woods, very, a little bit of cutover, not a whole lot. So. I try, try to pick an area, say a mile, mile and a half, and and try to learn the best way that the deer travel, and try to learn where the doe groups you want know, kind of hang out at, and then try to pick out. My main strategy is kind of during the rut and pre-hunt is how they travel, how what kind of edges they use, bench points, you know, uh, bluff gaps. It'll be a place where they can get up a bluff or to a mountain or ridge with it, where it's where it's bluffed off everywhere else. The things, things that funnel deer to certain areas and uh my basic way to start out is when i find a mile and a half place that i'm interested in learn where all the food is where the food plots acorns you know honeysuckles and and i walk creeks and drains just finding creek crossings and trying to find a big track and how they're traveling which way and then try to make me a plan that before season starts of how i want to 
hunt a specific buck like that during the rut and pre-rut and outside of that early season i try to find where a buck is bedding on a say a secondary corn or something like that and how he's going to get acorns early acorns and stuff like that and try to set up on him bow hunt that's my main strategy there so okay so is it fair to say like i guess early season you know you're you're focusing on probably bedding cover for the most part right and then you start to transition toward more like of your yeah. typical kind of funnels and pinches and, and things like that during, yeah. during rut. Right. And I like to learn with the does tend to, to hang out with, and I run cameras, you know, year round. If you're, if you can do that in your state, that's, I recommend that. I don't really use cameras for like this season, but I'll compile the data for like for next season. And I also keep up, I got a journal where I keep up with all, everything that I think is important to me as far as hunts and, and things that happens during the season, whatever. And I'm always reading that for the next year, and then going through mature camera pictures on on specific days and, and times that bucks are on their feet during the daylight. So the trail cameras will tell you, you know, a lot as far as that information. Right. That's one thing for for me when I started focusing more and more on on big woods because that's one of the, my favorite things to hunt too. Um, was that kind of long-term data, you know, and playing the long game of getting one, two, three years worth of information, even if it's not about a specific deer I've found, especially, you know, my strategy really is probably more so focused in and around kind of primary scrapes and scrapes in, in general and, uh-huh. you know, bedding cover and stuff like that. And, and the reason being is because I'm be honest, I'm not smart enough to like figure them out any other way. I, if I can get consistency, <laughs> consistency, in an area where it's like, Hey, I know that this scrape turns on in this four day window, or this is a community okay. scrape that they're going to, he's going to hit often in the beginning of October, you know, then he's going to abandon it and then come back at the beginning of November or whatever it is. If I watch that cycle, doesn't matter what deer it is. They're kind of using it. Those communication hubs the same, regardless of right. what deer it is. That's a lot of times what I use. Where right. are you, where are you hanging your cameras? Are you kind of using the scrape approach or using travel corridors? What's, what's that look like? It's very rare that I put one on a scrape. I did this year in an area where my wife was hunting because it was a big old scrape and it had, you know, it had the limbs broke and stuff like that. And then we hung it up for a week or so during the the main part of the rut. And was it, it's, it's interesting to see that most of the time when a big buck would come using it was at night. And but there was a couple, of, you know, pretty good bucks in the daylight using it. So, but most time, like I say, I don't want them to know I'm hunting them. Period. So I'm using putting them on travel corridors. Uh, shelves uh, above bluff gaps or creek crossings, stuff like that. I just, anywhere that they can travel or some kind of edge, mm-hmm. and it's going to be specifically a place I feel like I could hunt it. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not generally just for information. It's, it's somewhere where I, I would hunt here, and if, if I think a buck could come through here, or, you know, during his normal travel or traveling, cruising for does or whatever, I want it to be a place I could hunt. So that's that's generally where I put my cameras at. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Cause again, different guys have different approaches. Some guys, you know, won't ever put a camera anywhere close to where they're going to hunt other guys like me. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll put a camera. I mean, hell this year, probably two different times. I literally climbed the same tree that I had a camera on because I felt like that was the, like that mm-hmm. was the tree. But the one All thing right. that you mentioned there about scrapes, you, you put one on this year and you know, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of times, you know, a lot of nighttime inventory, you'll get it occasional kind of you know day walker and 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 so that kind of brings me this question of you know because i 
as I evolve as a hunter, I have a hard time abandoning really good kind of say community scrapes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, John Eberhardt is a guy that I kind of took his methodology or his kind of strategy around hunting, hunting scrapes and, you know, kind of steal a little bit from Troy Pottinger because he's really, he's really good at it. But then I talked to a guy like Nathan Killen, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and he will not, I won't say will not. He, if he can have his way, he doesn't like to hunt over big sign, whether it's rubs, whether it's scrapes, whatever it is, he's going to hunt off of it. And that I I understand the logic behind it and the strategy behind it. And the, the guy's a killer. I just have yeah, a really yeah. hard time abandoning it because we're all in love with big sign. And I get it. And I'm just curious, are you kind of the same way? Do you kind of, okay, I have big sign here. I know there's a big deer here. I've seen a big track. I've seen a big rub. Maybe there's a big scrape, mm-hmm. but you're not going to hunt right on it. You might hunt just off it. Or what's your approach to that? Yeah, I, I like seeing the sign, but I'm generally, I don't really hunt that specific sign, but it just helps, helps with the pieces of the puzzle to kind of get where they're at and how they're traveling and, and how they're using them scrapes and, and going back to Troy and, you know, he's like, say he's real good. And uh, Eberhardt, you got to find your style that you, that you feel comfortable with and want to do and, and spend your time doing it. And you can be successful doing that. that that's fine. I, I've, you know, I've listened to them, them podcasts and all that. It's just extra information that, that helps me to learn, you know, the bigger pieces of the puzzle to help me for, for next year's book or whatever. So, but yeah, I, I don't generally do it. I, I, I like knowing where they're at, but I don't, I don't really mess with the scrapes and stuff that much. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, that's uh it's a hard it's, it's a hard deal for me to for me to break cuz I just uh I'm a scrape hunter. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? I, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, in the early, early bow season, if I find a, a scrape line itself, early bow season, when they first start letting scrape lines out, hey, I'll be all on that. You know? Right, right. Yeah, I guess I should, I guess I should, should have qualified that. There's definitely a time where I, when I will abandon them. It's, it's around that same time frame. Like I've really found, you know, I had two of my best encounters this year. It just wasn't meant to be. One was um, behind a piece of brush at 15 yards. I just didn't get a shot. And, Another one in PA, I had it, you know, I guess he was at 18 yards and, uh, I couldn't tell which deer it was until it was too, it was too late. And I made the rookie mistake and just didn't draw. I should have drawn and waited to see which deer it was. Cause I was trying to decipher which eight point it was. Cause one, I wanted to kill the other one. I was not going to kill. And, okay. uh, and they were both, uh, they were both over scrapes, but they were kind of around that October lull time frame, Like they were, and I've grown more and more to like that kind of 
October 15th or 13th through almost like the 18th to 20th is kind mm-hmm. of a, a, a frame or a time frame that I've really kind of grown to like because I feel like my my hunting scrape strategies kind of works at that time because one, a lot of guys aren't in the woods because they think it's the law. And so they kind of, you know, there's not a lot of movement, you know, food has changed and they're, you know, deer are shifting a little bit. Um, right. and, but I found that like those scrapes still kind of seem to be hot. And that's usually when I get like the first kind of set of mature bucks that are going to walk for the first time in daylight around that time frame. Do you kind of see anything similar? Do you have a similar strategy or how do you play that time of year? That, that would be the time frame here. The, the, the public land I hunt early like that is October before Halloween. When it gets Halloween, to me, they get on their, in our area, they get on their feet more. Mm-hmm. So they're doing a little bit more cruising, you know, they're spreading the range out more. So, But before that, yeah, I would get on a scrape line, fresh, big scrape, you know, higher up in the mornings and in, in the evenings, you know. I, like, I prefer being low in the evenings, mm-hmm. closer to a mountain or hill or something where I think they're bedding that where they're coming off to go to check a scrape or go make their mile you know that's where they're running around right doing a little sparring and fighting or whatever so but that, yeah i would early season yes that would be there's nothing wrong with that i'd do it in a heartbeat yeah now do you do you prefer because this is another kind of change that i've made over probably like the past two years just i guess slowly kind of i guess I, as i evolve is i've started hunting and having better encounters in the earlier part of October around that same time frame, I was just, you know, we were just talking about in during morning hunts versus evenings. And I feel like, I just feel like I'm getting way, way better encounters and just way more action in that kind of, you know, gray light to say nine thirty, ten o'clock time frame than I will at that kind of, I guess during that time of the year, it'd be probably that four to kind of six, four to six thirty maybe time frame. Do you kind of feel the same way or do you prefer mornings or evenings? Early season, early season, I, I prefer both. I mean, mm-hmm. but it's you know when the rut comes on or pre-rut, if I can if I could stay in the stand all day, I would do that. But my wife, when she's hunting with me, she she's either hunting evenings or mornings, so I'm I'm coming out uh, helping her get out or whatever. But yeah, like early season, yeah, more I like mornings and evenings. More successful in the mornings, mm-hmm. but I've had bow hunting. I've had a few successes, like three year old bucks in the evening, right the last fifteen minutes, something coming off. I'm coming out of their bed and going down to the bottom. So, but right, but I, I prefer. I, I'm, to me, if you can be in the woods hunting, it, it, there's no preference to me. But most of my bigger bucks, period, have been killed in the morning, mm-hmm. early. And there's been one or two that's been around lunch. So, right. It sounds like your preference is just to hunt. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I'm a. I, I'm not a moon man. I'm not a. a high pressure, low pressure, whatever. If I'm off work and can go, I'm going, you know, right. unless it's a tornado lightning or something like that. I'm, you know, I'll hunt the rain. Right. I like, I like the wind. I like it being a little windy. I prefer that. So. Okay. What, what's your, what's your kind of preferred, preferred wind as far as like, you know, miles per hour. Like, do you like a good stiff 15, wind? You know, I like it still 15 to 25 mile an hour. I mean, to yeah. me, the bigger bucks I've seen more in a kind of wind like that than, mm-hmm. than a, than a low winter and the evenings I hate a calm yeah. that got me in Iowa this year on the last day where I tried to make a a uh, bold move to get close where these bucks were coming out of this CRP and the dang wind that's the only day that was there that the wind got calm and it had to be that evening <laughs> when, if you ever heard about somebody doing a dry ice test if you take a bucket of dry ice and set it the floor where it's calm and it just rolls over and just slowly spreads and if you took a fan and just turned it on every now and then it would just 
blows that scent everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that that's the worst scenario you can have in the evening. And that happened to me and I on the last day and the books didn't come out. Yeah. So, so. No, I, I totally understand your pain there. I had the same, I had almost the same thing happen to me in, in Kansas this year. I was on the ground, went into this place I hadn't hunted before and looked at it on a map and figured, let me walk in gray light so I don't, you know, booger anything up and set up in this edge of this CRP that had, was like kind of a little lip down into this creek bottom. I was like, cause I want to be able to see it whenever the light breaks. So I want to kind of figure out where my best ground setup is going to be. And so I did that and uh, a doe came in behind me at, at, you know, at first light, she got out of the way and I was just getting ready to move. And I just happened to look up and I saw tines coming through the, the timber and I kind of stopped and made a scrape. And I mean, we had 20 to 30, 35 mile per hour winds, pretty much like the whole trip, you know, while we were there, I was there for two weeks and I can't, I can't think of another day that we didn't have just like a hard wind all day. This day was supposed to have maybe seven mile per hour winds and I did not have a stitch of wind. And long story short is I snort wheezed that buck in whenever he, he turned around to walk, he turned around to walk away from me and I was going to lose him. So I snort wheezed him. He came back, saw my decoy, went to circle downwind to me and there was just a little drop, uh, right off to my right. And I knew my thermals were probably pulling down into there. And I was like, oh man, if I can just get that seven mile per hour wind right about now <laughs> would be great. Yeah. And, uh, it just wasn't meant to be. And he hit this little piece of brush. I was at full draw and he hit this, uh, piece of brush. It was kind of by this down tree and I could see the, the front of his tines, the tip of his nose and the front of his feet. And I needed like three more steps and I had a window and, uh, he just wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to get that wind and he wasn't going to do it. And he turned around and walked out of my life. And that was it. That was the next to last day. And that was the last encounter I had. Yeah. But my way, I want a steady wind if possible, but you know, I'm hunting regardless, but I love a steady wind and it seems like something about a higher wind. I've mm-hmm. seen more bucks in, in a higher wind. Yeah. A buddy of mine owns a trail camera company and he's actually taken a look at all the trail camera data that he has like over the years and looked at wind for when he saw the most, not just movement, but mature buck movement and what those wind kind of, uh, ranges were. And I want to say it was something in that, like 12 to 15, like up to like 20 mile per hour. If my memory's serving me correctly, like it was that kind of Wind speed range was when he saw the most movement across, you know, several years worth of trail camera pictures. Um, and so, I believe it. yeah, yeah. And it really didn't matter if it was a headwind, a tailwind or whatever the case was. So long as they had consistency, that was whenever right. you would see the movement. Yeah. Like I say, I believe it. So yeah. An was another, you know, another key to that. We, the, the wind blowed, like I say, at least 10 mile an hour most of the days and, and the colder it was, they, they moved up there more. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Now you mentioned, now tell me if I'm wrong here. I kind of caught this when you were, when you mentioned it in passing, as we were talking about something else, but you mentioned about finding a specific buck, you know, do you typically just kind of find a buck that you want to hunt and that's the deer you're going to hunt for the year? Or are you, are you more of a hunt for opportunity type of, type of approach? I'm, I'm a hunt for opportunity for, you know, uh, specific buck is fine early season to me and the people that can pick out a specific buck or find him and, and know that's him and know specific him and kill him consistently is that's hey that's impressive mm-hmm. i've i cannot really do that i have done it once or twice you know but i'm i want to be in the area 
where I have more than one opportunity. There can be more than one buck come through. I'd rather be, especially in the run and pre-rut, where bucks are trying to check does out and stuff like that, and you can have a buck come from four miles or whatever mm-hmm. to check out a doe group or something like that. that. To me, that's my best odds for success, and that I prefer to play them odds. But early season, yeah, I look for a specific book and try to hunt them early season, but when, like I say, Halloween comes on, <laughs> I flip the switch and then hunting corridors and stuff like that for, for rut rut activity and pre-rut right now i mean we talked a little bit about about big woods but i'm out i'm imagine where you're at and i don't don't know exactly where you're at i mean do you have kind of a mix like the public that's around you is it some big woods and mountains swamps i imagine probably some hill countries do you have that kind of diversity in that area or is it or do you kind of have just like one kind of i guess habitat or terrain type in, in the specific area that you that you live and hunt uh, we we've got three or four different main main mariners that we hunt, and they're say one of them's a hundred something miles away, say two and a half hour drive, and then you can go from from mountain style hunting to swamp, you know, lowland hunting. And I like it. I like doing that too. I love hunting in the swamps, and the one area I hunt is in the swamps. And then we have a lot of piney pine management areas or weather management for timber and stuff like that. And you got a lot of cutovers, and that's interesting hunting, and it's, it's it holds a lot of deer and and that's that's some good hunting too so we have a a, a real good diverse way of tactics or styles of and you could do here in, in different types of trains and uh, we enjoy all of it right how are you i guess um because i have a similar stuff here where it's right around me locally i have a fair amount of fair amount of swamp um i don't have a ton of elevation change around me necessarily and then i travel a little bit in in pennsylvania within pennsylvania to to get to some big woods pieces and and stuff like that. And a lot of my out of state stuff usually is some type of hill country a lot of, a lot of times, but mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Cause I know for me, you know, each place that I go to when I'm scouting, there's a lot of things that are similar that I kind of take with me, you know, that are kind of tried and true kind of principles or, you know, whatever, whatever you might call them. But I always kind of have to kind of think about things a little bit differently for each type of terrain that I'm going to be in, that I'm going to potentially hunt, you know, especially if I'm hunting, because the wind's certainly going to do different things in different types of different types of terrain. Each has Um, different types of food sources and and, and things like that. So how do you, how does your approach change when you're either scouting or hunting these different kind of these different terrain types? My biggest thing is like I say, is, is when you're looking at an area, don't try to look too small. Try to look at the bigger picture. Say, say a, a place like I like hunting in a swamp. It, it, there's, there's 12 or 14 different ridge systems or, or higher land systems that kind of funnel toward this swamp. Where they, go, if they're going to go to check out any of these ridges, they're going to use that swamp in, a, in one way or the other to access it. Mm-hmm. So they, they they run them edges in the swamps, and some of them run out through the middle of them. But but and it's easier to find tracks and in the swamps and stuff like this to use that but i'm a big picture type of guy even on creek crossing stuff like that is what's around say out to a mile away that where they would use that to cross to get to, to a different root system or a different doe group or a different food source so or, or to cross roads or, or something like that so <laughs> it's it, i try to look at like say the, the bigger picture on that instead of just defining in one small area Right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense, you know, just to kind of understand it's almost, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's almost, you're trying to understand their behavior, what's going to drive their behavior 
and maybe mm-hmm. behavior might be the wrong word. It might be more of what's going to uh, drive or dictate their movement from a topography and habitat standpoint in a, in a broad sense, because you'll kind of look, are you looking and saying like, this is if every deer could have their choice of being somewhere to be safe or have food or whatever, whatever it is, this would be the one place. And then you go out from that and look at it and say, uh, if I were a deer that lived within a mile radius of that, how would I get there? Right. Right. And, and, and also look at it like is whenever bucks break out their back in the groups, they split up, they all go, you know, they get their dome areas and you just kind of picture that as a big, big round pie or a big square or whatever. And imagine a bucking is a half a mile apart bedded and where are they going to go or how they're going to go to get to food plots or, or creek crossings, anything like that. Where would be a, a good area to catch them doing that travel or are they going to check on Mary Jane that's over here living in Lake Louise or, or this girl over here that lives over here the other half a mile away, whatever, how are they going to, use specific edges and stuff because bucks love using edges and, and you know thicker cover um mm-hmm. uh cut over edges stuff like that you know yeah. ledges shelves things like that just of a, a, a habitat inside of a habitat to how they're going to use something to get somewhere that's an interesting way to say it habitat inside a habitat i like that because that's really what we're looking for then is like within those areas, like where's the diversity, right? Where do you have just a bunch of stuff that's coming together yeah. in one place? And even if hunters push them up or, you know, or if it just a dog gets in heat, how, how would you use to travel to get, you know, with the buck following behind or whatever. So just things like that. It, it's, it's a lot of things to kind of think of, but it's, I just try to expand my mind a little bit when I'm, when I'm doing that, because I believe me, I've hunted, I've grown up hunting all kind of ways from sitting on scrapes to, you know, sitting on, food plots or whatever and to me this is the style that i use now is is i see more bucks and i do anything and 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 they're more successful doing it so when you so when you take a look at that big kind of picture of the area that you're going to hunt and we'll just say it's a a uh like a a square mile like for lack of a better just for a reference right yeah i think people can kind of wrap their head around like okay you know okay, I'm going to look at this ridge system and I see all these, these ridges and maybe I've got some secondary ridges that maybe look like good bedding opportunities. Right. And maybe, you know, this thick covers over here is probably going to hold those and they're probably going to want to get there. Right. And we've got these benches that are all kind of connecting these ridges together, you know, and so it seems like a good kind of travel corridor or whatever the case is. Right. I think guys can kind of look at a map and maybe see where some of those things start to kind of, you know, come together. I think where some people get lost, and I'm I'm guilty of this as well, is, you know, how do you then go about breaking down the spot within the spot, right? So you've kind of got a sense now, like, okay, deer are going to probably move like this on this square mile area. But now I've got to find the spot within the spot and ultimately the tree in that spot to hunt. How are you going about breaking it down to that level? My biggest tactic for scouting is postseason. Soon as season's over, go boots on the ground, all hit all them ridges, all the edges, all the creek crossings, everything you can find right down where all each specific type of food source, you know, edges, unique changes, you know, and, and here you when it's real, real cold, you know, those and even bucks like bedding where the first sun shines and points and secondary points because I've been worn too. So, you know, noting stuff like that, just, but postseason is, 
that's my biggest part of scouting. Him and my wife will we'll go camp and we'll I'll turkey hunt in the mornings and we'll scout and look for sheds and stuff in the afternoon. And I put a lot of miles doing that. Just learn your area the best you can then, and then depending on how everything works, stuff like that in the fall, you you make your plan of how you want to hunt. Now, do you take like a section, like for example, because I'll just one of the approaches I've kind of used and I'm, it's, it's funny. Cause as you're kind of talking, I'm thinking myself through, you know, my, my postseason scouting. Cause I've been kind of tackling this big woods piece. It's close to me and it's to the tune of hundred plus thousand acres. It, all the other adjoining pieces, it might get close to 200. Wow. And, and, it, and so it's big. And so it's daunting to look at. And so my first step was last year is I just kind of picked a spot where I thought, all right, the terrain looks pretty interesting around here. Some of it looks hard to access. Right. So, People should, I shouldn't have a lot problems with a lot of people. You know, that was kind yeah, of my, that's another, that's another good point too. Yeah. And so I kind of circled that area and then even within that area, I mean, I'm still talking a couple thousand acres, you know? Right. And, so, and so then I was kind of whittled it down to like these couple ridges, you know, or whatever the case is that I kind of, that I kind of liked what was there. And I, I did some driving by and a little bit of scouting kind of marked where some clear cuts, you know, are, are, are located and stuff like that. And then, I took my first scouting trip there and just, it was just a complete, I won't say a waste of time because anytime I spend time in the woods, isn't a waste of time, but I didn't get a whole lot of hunting value out of it necessarily. I probably learned more of where not to be than anything else, which I guess is valuable, but it's very valuable. (laughs) Yeah. You learn where not to be. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then what I did was I ended up talking to a guy who was local to there because I had found some sign, but I needed to qualify because I was like, I don't know if what I'm finding is actually good for the area or not good you know it's like should i be finding bigger sign or is this actually the best sign i'm gonna find you know because it was really spread out you know it's a big woods piece wow. and uh and so i ended up hanging some cameras over some scrapes and found some really good bucks you know this year and so and i hunted it once um this couple hour drive from my house and then i went back in late season and did a just kind of still hunted for two days but was really kind of there to try to figure more of the puzzle pieces out so to speak. And mm-hmm. what I kind of figured out after that first scouting mission that I had, and this was something that my friend Johnny Stewart's told me and his, his words were ringing in my ear whenever I was driving back from that first scout where I was like, man, I don't think I know what the hell I'm doing. And, uh, <laughs> questioned myself and you know what he's always told me, cause he hunts, you know, a big woods piece in PA, the Alleghenies, which is a, you know, it's a, uh, like a wildlife, I forget what it's, it's referred to, but it's a super remote area, hundreds of thousands of acres, just like ridiculously big. And what he's always done is said, find a place that you really like, and then just spend time saying, all right, this year I'm going to learn this spot and just learn that spot. And then the next year add another spot to it and then learn that spot. And he's like, you know, he's like, you know, if you look at it as a whole, it's too much to take in. If you can start breaking it into smaller pieces and just learn sections of it, intimately he's like you're going to be a lot further ahead so i so that was kind of my approach do you take a similar approach to like very, in terms you know, of like very similar, very similar? Yeah. very similar and i'm going to use it as another guy that had done some podcasts i'm going to use his term you find your spot and claim that spot is yours and you know whether it's public land or what <laughs> and learn it completely inside out learn how, if other people come on it learn how that affects the deer and stuff like that you, mm-hmm. you find a spot that you like or, and and you know that deer's there or deer's going to use, you know, you use it as yours, claim it, and then uh, and learn a bit of it and hunt it, and you'll, you know, you'll be successful. Right. How much, uh, when you are scouting in those areas, because I imagine, 
Alabama's a big hunting state. I'm imagining yes. you're you're seeing a fair amount of pressure too. How how much does finding other people's kind of stands that they let up and stuff like that factor into your your hunting strategy? How much are you hunting hunting them as much as you're hunting the deer? Uh, not that much. I don't. I try to stay where if I know where somebody's using it, I don't. I don't access that way. I don't. I don't like encroaching on other ones like that. So uh, I, I won't do it. I'll try to. I try to get, like you say, on the entrance and exit or whatever. I try to where most people ain't going to go. So mm-hmm. most, you know, most of the places is, not all of them, but most places is over a mile to mile and a half, hour and a half to two hour walk, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to be somewhere I don't see that many people. So I don't think I've seen but one guy this year, maybe one last year, but anyway. So, yeah. you know, some places not that far, but the majority of them is. So. Right. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you do start to get off the beaten path that, that far back, at least what my experience has been, is that the respect for the, that the hunters have for each other that far back <laughs> it, yeah. in, increases, you know, uh-huh. anytime I have a trail camera, it's, you know, I might hang one somewhere because I'm like, eh, this would be a good spot for inventory. I know there's going to be people around here. I'm not going to hunt it, but I know that there'll be deer even at night pass through. And I'll know at least that there's what, what good deer are around, you know, uh-huh that trail camera will get stolen, you know, and I'll have it hung up 10 feet off the ground. I walk two miles back somewhere. I'll get one guy who's back there scouting too, waving at my camera, letting it alone, might run into him at the parking lot, but mm. it won't bother anything. Might even, we might even share Intel with each other because I'm like, Hey man, if you're back there working too, you know, I'll, uh, I'll even tell him like, Hey, take a look at the card when you're back there. If there's good deer on it, you know, take a look. Like I, I don't mind, you know, if you, if you do, and I meet you in the, parking lot just tell me what you saw so i ain't got to walk back there and check it <laughs> you, uh, you know what i mean yeah. so i just yeah, feel yeah, like you'll, you, build that, you'll build that camaraderie with some folks like that, the, the the real true woodsman and, and dedicated ones yeah that's that's a, that's a neat thing yeah for sure what uh you know as you're kind of building your strategy throughout the course of the year you know because you've mentioned uh i say it wrong I'll, I'll say acorns i know i say it wrong um <laughs> <laughs> um you know, I think acorns down here, acorns, acorns. Yeah, I know. I know. I say it wrong. My buddy, <laughs> my buddies that are, that I do have that are from the South, you know, they, they certainly yeah. make sure that we know that it's, it's not, yeah. but I, I would be appropriating your Southern culture if I said acorns, you know, and I just can't do that. So yeah, that's fine. You know, mass, mass crops is a good, is a good thing for it. For right. for it. There you go. But, uh, but as you're kind of making your strategy, man, you know, how are you, prioritizing like are you more focused on on cover or are you more you know focusing on changing food because i know some guys will it's all about cover 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 you know and i know other guys where it's like yeah they like to be in the cover but man in that early september september or i'm sorry early october time frame like they're really kind of chasing the changing food sources so what's what's your approach to that Alabama, that's totally different because you know, deer are mainly a browser, so we don't really have a killing frost that much. So mm-hmm. they can browse and, and just walk and browse forever. There's plenty of browse most of the time. And acorns, especially in the big woods, if we haven't we had a good crop this year, they can, they, actually we had a tremendous crop this year, they could lay somewhere and then walk 10 foot and eat a bucket of acorns and then lay down and be good for the day. So mm-hmm. it's that our food source does not change that much until it's real late season. They'll, they'll start getting close to some good food blocks or something like that, honeysuckles. So, you know, I don't really, 
I don't count that as my factor that much. It's just and those those groups are pretty much homestead areas and, and kind of find out where they hang out and just concentrate on stuff like that on my main strategy. So do you find so with that, do you find that after those bucks kind of peel peel velvet and disperse, mm-hmm. do you mm-hmm. find that you still have pretty consistent kind of I guess movement in general, or maybe uh, consistent isn't the right word. Maybe it's more predictable because I know around here, I'm going to get that dispersion or that dispersal that's going to happen. You know, usually I see them peel around here from all like the trail camera data I've had over the years, probably around between like the 10th and like the 13th of September is when they'll peel and they'll start to disperse and I'll lose some bucks. I'll get some new bucks in in areas or whatever the case is. And then like this year, I mean, we had a, a crazy mass drop this year and I mean, bucks just disappeared like at the drop of a hat were, were gone and just kind of completely, I won't say completely relocated, but finding them was, was a lot more challenging this year than it had been in years past. Right. But, but that's partially because, you know, we're going to get some colder temps. They're going to, they're going to suck up those, those, those acorns. And, you know, that's just kind of the, the game plan. Like you got to be where those are at. Otherwise, you're probably not going to be in be in the game. But it sounds to me like because there is more consistent food there that you're probably going to get more predictability for a longer part of October than you would maybe say in Pennsylvania. Is that am I reading that right or is that wrong? Well, it's predictably unpredictable because <laughs> uh, bucks, mature bucks especially, they're they don't want to be messed with. They don't they don't like being hunted or or don't like being around each other. once they split up in the early the place that I hunt early. It's, it's similar to what you say by by October they're already split up pretty much mm-hmm. uh so if they find where their, their first food like we had this year they don't have to go far so they're not messing around in daylight so it's, it's very mm-hmm. limited limited movement until the pre rut and rut so it's it's not easy at all so right I, I would think in the midwest and stuff it might be a little bit but that just depends on how a crop feels and stuff like that it's hard to because if they're laying out there in the crops which would be what most bucks would do i would think is while they're there, they they ain't got to go anywhere, so it's it's hard to hunt them until them's cut, I guess. But right, so I, it, to me, that's just the way it is here. They're 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 unpredictable, especially when you got a lot of acres and stuff like that. Because they, I mean, you can't hardly find them because if they don't disappear. They can't fly out there. They just they don't have to move as much. So you got to be exactly where they're at. And I don't want to be that do that because if you if you're exactly where they're at and you're close enough to know where they're at, they know where you at. Most of the time, so I don't want I don't want to do that. Right. We have thick floral bushes and and stuff like that. There's no way to to get to them while they bed on these secondary points or ledges. And, and sometimes it's even in the bottoms on little shelves that are above, say, ten foot above creek stuff like that. There's no way that you can get to them like that without them knowing you're there. So right. they use thermals. You know, they use thermals, you know, with the thermals are coming up to the nose and they got wind coming over their back and they can see way out in front of them and I got kind of a hard back to them with the beds. It's almost impossible. So. Right. So correct me if I'm wrong. So it sounds like you would need to be hunting bedding areas, but you, you're not trying to get <clears throat> right up on, right up on a bed essentially. Cause I mean, I've got buddies that are like, they'll, they'll try to get within 50, 60 yards of a bed. You know, I'm not that stealthy, so I can't do it. So. No, <laughs> I'm not either. It's I was just I was just literally talking to a buddy of mine about that right before you and I started chatting. We were just talking about you know 
hunting beds because he's he's a bed hunter that's that's what he is and we scout together every year and we'll find beds and he'll say he'll kind of talk me through a setup and i was just explaining one of the setups that i was thinking about you know for this upcoming season on this one piece and i'm like i'll blow every deer out of the state i was like trying to access that bed i was like there ain't no way i can do it i was like i gotta find a transition area somewhere in and around there that i can successfully get in to hunt it with you know my access is good i was like because i think i know where they're at i was like but in order to get there, I was like, I just don't think I have a path to get there where I'm not going to screw it up, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Iowa Trip pointed that out. about They were bedding so close to the corn or beans that they were coming out of, it was, it was impossible in the morning to hunt them. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and I think of that, I use that logic kind of with our bugs and stuff. I don't even think about getting anywhere near a bed in, in the morning because you don't know. It's dark, and I'm going out dark, so you don't know what stage they are as they're going to their bed or how they're going to their bed. Areas you, you might bump them out and then not never know it. Yeah. So at the closest I get to hunting any kind of bed, it'll be in the evening where I feel like they're going to come off from a bed area up on a secondary corner or something like that, and I'm at the bottom. So I'm I'm hoping they're not going to see me, and then it's generally green that time of the year. So mm-hmm. so I'm that's that's the closest I'll get to a bed, you know. Right. So you know those out of state trips, you know, you're always working with limited intel because you're not you're not from there even if you make scouting trips uh-huh. out and stuff like that it's always uh, it's always hard but I, you know I'm, I'm curious in general like do you i know you like to postseason scout it, it sounds like you're kind of really baking your plan during that time of the year mm-hmm. but how much are you how much time are you spending scouting during the course of the season versus versus hunting like, do you, do you typically have your spots kind of like, all right, I know that this is going to be the spot. I just got to wait for the right time. Or are you kind of scouting throughout the season to try to find the hottest spot to kind of be, cause maybe, you know, it's, Hey, Hey, it, this area is going to be good. I just need to find where the signs being laid down within this 15, 20 acre area to know where I need to be set up or where I need to kind of, where I need to kind of put a stand or whatever the case is. How, do, how are you kind of doing that during the season? During the season, I have historical places that that generally during the rut or pre-rut, there's going to be some kind of action going on, and it's generally within a week or two period. But I'm also looking at different areas or newer areas just in case something happens to that area or say if I kill one or two or whatever, and I I need a different spot. So I have the historical areas, but I'm always looking for newer areas during the, the season. And there's plenty of people that I know. There's there's an older man that was talking about scrape hunting. This guy's 70-something plus years old, and he hunts scrapes specifically most of the time, and he's doing that in the evening, and he's scouting every morning, and hmm. he's, in, he's hunting scrapes in the evening. So, hmm. so I mean, you can you can go that approach. But, I, I, like I said, I have my historical areas, but I don't mess, I don't really move around in them areas because I'm, I don't I don't know generally how they travel or going to travel. So just, it's more like spending a little bit of time concentrating on them spots, but, look, but I'm always looking for different areas. Right. Yeah. It, you can never have enough areas, but what I'm hearing is, is like, you've, you've done your homework to this point. You know, these places are going to turn on now. It's just about hunting it smart. And uh, they'll have to come in and start cutting timber or something in there. And then they'll have it blocked over. You can't hunt within half a mile of a timber operation. So you got to have an alternate plan for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's especially public land hunting, man. That's the right. one thing, right. you know, guys that I know that, you know, maybe you're when they just kind of start, you know, maybe they'll, you know, message me or whatever, ask me for some advice. My first thing is always like have plan A through Z because, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. 
basically everything up to Z probably isn't going to work this year for whatever reason, for any number of reasons, you, you know. Yeah, but, my uh, gun hunts are only specific days and only, you know, and you only have so many of them. And if you're off work or if you're taking vacation, whatever, so you got to have your plan pretty much made up because it's kind of, it's kind of hard to change stride with a, with a limited number of days. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so, I mean, I want to, I want to get to this deer that you killed this year, man, because that thing is just, a hammer. I could pick your brain for hours just about hunting in general, but I want to be sensitive to your time and, and, and get to this story. Um, cause this thing is just a, a hammer. And, uh, and I, I caught wind of it after I kind of learned of you. And then I, you know, got online, did a little, did a little search and saw a video. And, and this thing is just a, a freaking magnum. And I guess my, my first question is, you know, did, did you have any Intel about this specific deer prior prior to hunting him or like, I know you like to hunt for opportunity, but did you know this, this guy was, this guy was around? Yeah, I yeah. did. Uh, well, he is one, he is like, the I've only killed two bucks that I knew was there and was, was kind of hunting on purpose. I, I wasn't for sure a hundred percent that he was alive this year for sure. But I was, I was, I was pretty positive. I didn't have a trail cam picture of him. A deer like that, those people would have, well, a deer like that people would have talked about. You would have heard if someone right. killed a deer like that. So you can make a pretty good guess. Oh yeah, but he, but you don't ever know, and that's true. And it, and some people in the area that I hunt, they kind of keep things kind of on the, on the down low. So mm-hmm. you might have heard, might not have heard, but okay. And uh, the the first I had pictures of him. I got counting this year. I had three years of pictures of him. The first year I had pictures of him, he was he was non typically kind of like he is now. And uh, but after I had pictures of him in November in, in daylight and I had a couple pictures of him in March and he was still toting his antlers, but he looked rough. He was hmm. just skin up looking, looked kind of sick and he was running around with two or three other bucks that, that had lost their antlers. And I showed pictures to the biologists and we couldn't really make any determination that what was wrong with him or whatever. And then because, you know, you got to talk of CWCD or EHD or whatever, you, you know, that affects places. So, uh, but the next season I got him and, and he was walking around, in November, man, he was close to 160 inches. It looked like, and uh, he only had one split, but you could tell it was him by the way his frame was. And I, you know, I showed a few people pictures, and I, I, I hunted him. I missed him by one day. He come by where I was hunting at the next day, daylight falling some does at 9:30, and so. But you know, I, but this year, I'd made a plan. You know, I've killed uh, a 158 with a gun that's in the record book. Up mushroom stuff, and I've killed a 142, 21 half, 21 and a half inch inch. I've spread bow, bow buck that's in the record book. And my goal this year was, well, I'm gonna try to kill a, a buck and put a record book with a muzzle loader. And this guy was who I was gonna kind of concentrate on is, is whenever it comes, I was gonna wait till November because I knew from the two years' experience with the camera that he was kind of moving around in daylight a little bit in November. So, hmm. and uh, we had a muzzle loader hunt that was a five day muzzle loader hunt in November. And I had to work the first four days of it, and the last day of it, and my wife went and set up, and I, I eased down there, and uh, she was a half a mile away from him. I was hunting in his area, and uh, I had a at around nine thirty or so. I had a uh, like a, it's a pretty good sized body, like a six or seven point, you know, a good frame, but he just didn't have that much of a rat come by. And I was watching him; he was he was pulling around eating acorns and easing around and then a few minutes later I was, something caught my eye and I just seen this big rack kind of slipping through and it got behind some leaves and it's still real green I eased around where I could 
looked through the scope and I knew it was a big wreck, but I couldn't really tell you how big it was. And he stayed behind trees forever <laughs> and he just flipped out. And as soon as he flipped out, I shot him at 45 yards. And I could see through the scope that he done a mule kick and took off. And then a few minutes later, I heard a, well, I thought it was a good crash and stuff, but you know how things are. If yeah. You're not 100% sure until you see them. So I give him about 30 minutes and I had to pee like crazy. So <laughs> he up and, and tried to be all, do all that quiet. And I said, well, I'm going to start putting some of my stuff in the pack and stuff like that. And I forgot about that pee bottle and knocked it off, made all kind of dang racket. So, you know, <laughs> turning everything. So I eased down and trying to find blood and uh, missed it the first time. I had to come back and do a little bit of gridding for a second, found the blood trail. And He'd only went about 40 yards. and He'd run into a beach tray and knock the bark off of it. I said, golly, that was part of one crash. He chipped a couple of horns, but, but I seen him laying there, and I could see the one side real non-tipply, and the boy tears started coming because I knew that I was pretty sure it was him on camera, and it was, he was he just looked humongous laying on the ground. Hmm. But he was, uh, like you say, if, you ever, if you've seen pictures of him, he's a big old 18-point. He didn't have a wide spread. He's 15 half inch inside spread, but he had everything else. He just yeah, he did. Six-inch-plus bases and carried the mass out and, you know, 14-inch D2s. So he's yeah. just a monster buck, and he's right now he's a state record mode loader. So that's, nice. you know, I, was, I didn't even have that in my thought process until <laughs> the I was going to get him scored, and somebody called me asking about it, and I said, I don't think so. But anyway, he ended up beating the old state record by five inches. So. Yeah, I saw, what was he? He was 193 and some change green scored. To what did he What did he end up netting? It was not 196 and three-eighths gross. So that's but, uh, that was Alabama White Tower. Because but, uh, Buckmaster was 195 and six-eighths. Oh, that's, nice. So anyway, that's what we're going by. We don't. Boone and Crockett's it's something we're not real big fans of in Alabama. So Yeah, yeah. That's and, uh and it was I think one ninety five nets what it has to be to, to even be in Boone and Crockett. So that's a monster deer, so he's he, I don't think he'd make it but, Well, he's a monster he, deer regardless, yeah. man. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he, anyone would I don't think you would get an argument from anybody that saw that. I don't think you'd find anybody that say that wasn't a monster deer. Oh, uh, he's a he's a dream buck. He, yeah, he's a monster and he deserves all the, the credit and the, the publicity he gets. I mean he just for a deer to get to that and put on that that type of bone is amazing you know especially on public land and yeah and like you say in alabama he's he's upper tier for sure so yeah i mean how old how old was he six and a half six and a half yeah what was uh what was the spot what does the spot look like that he was he was living i mean i don't want gps i don't even want like a <laughs> name of a ridge or anything i just i'm uh, curious like what the habitat looked like in general was it clear cut was it you know a, a bottom was it a, a side of a ridge no so that's one thing I, you you ask anybody and I'll, and I'll tell you in the morning i'm always hunting high you yeah. know up the upper third of ridge lines and stuff like that and he was on the upper third going to maybe us he was he was probably going to a secondary point him and his buddy to to bed or something because they were heading toward like a security area so mm. Okay. So I'm assuming that what he was doing, but it was, you know, he, he had, he had crossed the Creek. And that's another thing I preach Creek crossing, some kind of drainage crossing, something like that gives you a lot of information, at least a good place, a good base to start because a big track does not lie. You know, mm-hmm. big tracks and big droppings are two things that don't lie. You know, rubs is kind of iffy and scrapes are kind of iffy, but, he, but anyway, he had crossed the Creek and then was on up a third going, you know, mm-hmm. the reason I don't hunt Creek crossings in the morning because the, the wind is too unpredictable. And, and there are hilly areas because it bounces and stuff, and then water 
water affects thermals. Right. It's, it's easier to control the thermals and the wind on the upper part in the morning. So. All right. Now, what did you think when you, so you, you shot him and you get down, you make all that racket and you're walking up on him. Like, what was your first thought when you, when you saw that, that deer and you realized which one it was? I was tears mainly. I, I was crying and dang praying and, and all that, you know, it just, I mean, I was just totally excited because like I say, it took me until I was 31 years old to kill a decent buck. And then I've killed, you know, some good ones and a couple more big ones, what I call big. And then to, to do it again, you know, you got places that you try to be in your hunting career, whatever, or goals you set. And to accomplish that goal of putting one in the record book with everything, it's just, it just a flow of emotions and stuff like that. So it's, it, you know, it feels like all the hard work and stuff has is, is come to, to a good point in my life. So it's, they do it with my wife and you know, when I got up I finally got up out of her, I had to drag I tried to drag him where I, well, I knew I was gonna have, have help, but I tried to drag him for over an hour to get to where I could get him where I, people wouldn't know exactly where I was hunting at. Then I get up out of her and I was tore up, I had blood all over me and sleeves pulled up and I got up to her and I said, I got him and she was excited. So we were like that, we got four people come back and help us and it took another three or four hours to get him out. So it was that's a good three or four hours though, man. Yeah, oh, them, them great three or four hours. <laughs> that's right, man. Like it's uh that it's that old saying, like you don't really realize how out of shape you are until you have to drag a deer. And then you, yeah. the other part is, is like, you really don't care how out of shape you are after you have yeah, to drag a big deer. Right. You don't care how it is. You get a couple good friends that help and, and you tell all the story and the story over again and other stories and all that is great times. I love, that's, that's one of the, but, you know, the most fun is is getting them out. You don't worry about how you're going to get them out, whatever. You got to worry about getting them flat first. You get them <laughs> flat, flat on the ground, then you can get them out somehow, piece by piece or what. So That's right. That's the last thing to worry about is getting them out. So. That's right. Well, he's a great buck, man. I'm happy for you. Um, it's really killer. Congra- it. Congratulations. Um, yeah, it's just a, a, a killer buck. I'm, you know, thankful you were, uh, you know, willing to share the story, you know, here. And so folks out there listening can kind of can hear it, you know, public land man there are giants they can be found that's for sure even in in alabama and i appreciate it and i appreciate all the podcasts and like you say you've been doing it for six or eight years and that's impressive and the 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 guys that are doing this stuff i know you say you got a job too so you've got a job and doing this that's that's a lot of stuff to keep up with a lot of work and i'm i'm glad that information like that because i listen to podcasts now i'd never heard of one until I don't know, eight, seven or eight years ago or something. I got a nephew who lives out in, in California and he was talking about Joe Rogan podcast. I said, Oh, what? Anyway, that's, <laughs> you know, that's one of the first ones I listened to. So. Right, right. That's awesome, man. Well, I have one last question for you, man. And this is always the hardest one. I always save it for for the, for, for last and I'll let you get out of here, be, be uh, considerate of your time. But uh, so uh-huh. imagine you have a basketball team for a three on three tournament. Okay. Good. But it's a basketball team of the best three DIY deer killers that you know that if you had to have three tags filled on public land for whitetails anywhere in the country and you could pick only three people, they can be people, you know, they can be people who are alive, people who are no longer with us. They can be people who are famous, whatever it is, who are those three people that you would put on your team? If you needed three public land whitetail tags filled and your life depended on it. Three public land white tail tags. I'm gonna give one to Tony Myers. He's a local older guy in our area. He just he's a big killer and he just grew up hunting public land, so he does it with a prosthetic now. So uh, mm. 
but I'll be one Tony Meyer from from Moulton, Alabama, and uh, another one. Told you it was going to be the hardest question of the night. That's a hard question because <laughs> I don't know people that hunt public land that much. And there's another thing is I don't know that many people out of the state because I don't. I've listened to a few podcasts. It's all right. You can be. They can all be from Alabama too, man. That's okay. Can they? Can I help? Me? I, I'm going to talk to my brother in there, Matthew, just to help me. You know. So yeah. So another one. Uh, public land. Let's see. You going to have another thirty minutes I had on this podcast. Me trying to think of somebody. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Told you it was the hardest one. Save it for last. <laughs> if I can go with them, can I go with them? Uh, yeah, you can go with them. This is one of my favorite guys that's just on TV. And I don't know how much, you know, some public I'm saying, but it's Fred Ocker because of his excitement mm. and his energy. So yeah. I'm going to have his recurve stuff. So I'm going to say Fred Ocker. So there you go. If I, I don't, I think, and I'm not throwing any wheel toward anybody else, I mean, not like that, but I just, and public land people, I mean, our girl, all the ones that are doing good. I know y'all have named off several great guys in, in y'all's podcast and stuff, name them. And so, but right. personally, I don't know that many people personally outside of the state. So. No, then that's fair. Those are three great names, man. It's uh, it's your team. You can build it however you want. You're the GM, so you're good to you're you're good to go. I it. And I've listened to a bunch of podcasts on you know the Troy Pondry you talking about. I've listened mm-hmm. to some of his, and he hunts different kind of mountains and. With dealing with the lines and, and the, the wolves and stuff like that, and that's cool. I mean, I, I'd love to like to see that part of the world. I've not been that far out hunting like that, and I've done a mountain lion hunt and some brown bear hunts and stuff like that. So I, I like dealing with the predators. So that, that part of what he does is cool. And then the other guys that, that the podcast, they get a lot of podcasts, but this year are very good to listen to, too. So. Yeah. And I appreciate all your work and all that's great information for anybody because there's a bunch of different styles that people are successful doing it. And, uh, listen to all of them and uh, I'm, I'm i'm all about all that so nice well i appreciate you coming on man and it sounds like uh we might have to have ha- might have to do a second podcast at some point to uh talk uh some brown bear hunting because that's uh that's one of the things that's on my bucket list is a brown bear hunt but we'll sa- we'll save that for, we'll, we'll save that for another if it's in your mind you need to do it because that that's it's an amazing hunt nice. i'll just give you that nice yeah so we'll have to we'll have to have that be a separate podcast so, but uh i appreciate your time tonight man uh you have your have yourself a good good evening and uh i hope to talk to you soon i appreciate you too buddy All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.